Hey, this is Jim Harmer, and you're listening to the Improved Photography Podcast, episode number 232. Today we're talking all about stock photography, and to t- and to talk about this, I have the guy who wrote the book on getting started in stock, Steve Heap, on the line. Hey, Steve, how are you? I'm great, great, great to be on the show. Well, welcome. I have read your ebook. You have an ebook on on Amazon. Uh, you can get it on the Kindle called Getting Started in Stock. And I read through the whole book. It's a quick read, uh, but it's just kind of like all the no-nonsense stuff that you really need to know and none of the obvious stuff that you really don't need to read through. Uh, so I, I really liked it. Uh, I've actually read a couple books on stock photography, uh, but I, I liked yours best. I think it was just kind of right to the details. So that was great. Okay, thanks. Well, I have a ton of questions to ask you about stock photography. Maybe I'll just give a very quick introduction of, of stock photography uh, to those who aren't familiar with it. I guess mostly what we're talking about today is micro stock. This is where you're selling a photo, you put it up on an agency that will be like iStock or Shutterstock uh, that will then make it make it available to to anyone, somebody who's writing a blog, po- blog post about cats and you have a picture of a cat and they want to use that photo in there, or it could be a photo of a, you know, off-roading car or whatever it is that uh, your photo is about. People have needs for those images. And so they're using them in blog posts. It could be on a billboard or a, or a TV ad. Uh, they have licenses for all different things, uh, but usually they're, you know, small uses and a lot of them. And and consequently, because this is a volume game, you don't earn a ton of money per image. Um, and so that, there are benefits and drawbacks to stock. It's definitely something that has been kind of beat up among photographers over the last few years as things have changed. But after reading your book, I was really um, encouraged by the state of the of the stock industry. Uh, so, so tell me, Steve, you, you, you were very open with your numbers in the book. So how much are you earning per month, uh, from your stock portfolio now? Uh, somewhere around 2,500 to $2,800 a month. And that's the cash that I receive. So that's, you know, my income from licensing stock photographs. Awesome. So that's great. I think when most people look at stock, they see, oh man, I'm going to sell this photo for a quarter. Like literally you're getting a quarter uh, for an image uh, and it's just super discouraging. But uh, obviously uh, those numbers add up. Yes. It it takes some time to get there. Um, And and one of the things I wanted to do in my book, as you said, you'd read a number of um, stock photography books and, and so did I. And some of them talk a lot about photography, which is sort of okay, but most people starting already know about photography. And what I wanted to do was to just give the, you know, the unvarnished, this is what you've got to do. It's not as that you look at your photos on your hard drive and you upload them and suddenly all this money comes in. You've got to choose them. You've got to make sure that they're really technically good. You've got to keyword them. You've got to describe them. You've got to upload them. So there's a whole lot of, you know, work that photographers don't actually like doing. Um, But unless you do those things, then no one will ever find them. I think there's what, 120 million images on Shutterstock, something like that. So if you've uploaded a picture of a cat and all you put in the keywords is cat, you know, what's the chance of anyone ever seeing that in, in the Shutterstock database? So I, I really wanted to get across the, the view that if you are good at photography and you're willing to put in the work in keywording and describing them and things like that, that there still is, um, you know, pretty reasonable business that can be made in this industry. Yeah, one of the examples that you gave is if you have a catalog of a thousand images that are suitable for stock, and not all images are, as we'll talk about, um, but if you have a thousand images um, and you uploaded them only to two websites, if you only put them on Shutterstock and iStock, uh, what you said in the book is, you know, I, I probably a, a good idea, a good average might be that you're earning $220 a month. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you take the time to upload them to a bunch, just about all the sites, you know, you put them up on 20 sites, you might expect that to be around $410 a month. So it's a lot of work to do that, you know, to upload and, and keyword a thousand images, but it's work that you do one time and you'll be getting that check for five years. 
Yes, yes, I, and I, I think that's one of the interesting things about it because if if you and it starts from you need to like photography. I, I think it's a hard business if you don't actually like taking photographs and you're just trying to do this, you know, just as a way of making money. But if you like photographs and um, and you know I do, then the incremental work is not the taking the photographs. It's that keywording describing bit. Um, but if you're willing to do that, and you know, sometimes I sit here at my computer with a glass of wine and just do keywording. You know, you've really got to put your mind into what is a buyer going to be searching for that would make your image interesting to them. And I think you know, putting yourself into the mind of the buyer is an important part of that process. Mm-hmm. I one thing that I thought was really interesting and exciting as I read through your book is most of the photos that you have up on stock are travel and landscape photos and you're still earning a really good income from that uh, where I usually think of ooh landscape photos aren't going to sell really well on <laughs> stock um, and but the, but it's more fun to shoot for me and so uh, it's exciting that uh, that you're you know doing this even with with photos that I would be taking anyway, <laughs> and I yes, have a Lightroom yeah. catalog absolutely absolutely chock full of landscape and travel images, and so it's uh, th- that's that's an exciting thing that you don't just have to take pictures of you know overly bright pictures of mixed race plasticky looking models shaking hands. <laughs> you know that's what we that's think wrong. of when we think of the typical stock photo. Yes, I mean there, there are. I, I think of stock photography in three areas. There are people, places, and things. Um, the people shots, as as you said, are largely populated with people doing all sorts of things. There's a whole lot of business ones, but there are family ones. And but generally, you need an, an interesting model as part of that, and that sort of takes you into where well, you've got to pay the model, and that's going to come out of the earnings. So, so people is. I would say by far the biggest area. There's that second one, well, I'll move to the things. The things to me are things that are around your home sometimes. Um, Sometimes you take them against the white background so that people can reuse it. Sometimes you, you know, take them in in their place. So if it was something in a kitchen, I've got a pressure cooker on on top of a stove and, and that sells pretty well, the steam coming out of it. So People want an image of a pressure cooker, um, and so they're going to look on a stock site for that type of thing. Um, I've also taken, and, and I tend to do this in the winter, I've bought some little plasticky bitcoins. You know, bitcoin isn't really a physical thing at all. It's, you know, it's a cyber currency. But I've, I've bought some of these plasticky bitcoins and created oh, like a Like a toy bitcoin or what? Yeah, that people just make them so that you can, I guess, have them on your desk or something because they're obviously not worth yeah, anything. Yeah, Bitcoin's obviously um, just digital. That's right. So, I, And so I've taken a whole series of images of Bitcoins and every time someone writes an article about Bitcoins or cyber currency and all that sort of thing, they like an image to illustrate it. And how else do you illustrate it apart from, you know, something that pretends to be a Bitcoin? So just thinking about, you know, what's in the news, what could be in the news, what people might want to illustrate articles about, gives you a whole range of things, you know, to take. My final one is places, um, and that's the travel and landscape stuff. And I enjoy traveling. We, you know, I, we go on vacation as often as we can. And whenever I go, I've got all my cameras and backpack and the tripod, and I'm out at sunrise trying to get you know, a different or a really interesting view of some something. So it's not a snapshot. I really try and take a good photograph of that place or that beach or that landscape. And people need those. They need up-to-date views of places because places change. And so even though there might be a photo, you know, five years old, the place may not look like that anymore. And so you know, they're, they're looking for something that's maybe, a, you know, a bit more up to date. And, uh, you know, I enjoy doing that, um, as, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners do. And it's nice to be able to, you know, see them in a calendar or see them in a guidebook when you visit one of these places. Yeah, that would be way cool. So where yeah. have you seen your photos used? Do, do uh, you see them often or? or uh, yeah. 
Yes, I, I, funnily enough, we, we moved into, um, as I, you know, we live in West Virginia now. I used to live in Virginia. And uh, we got a little calendar from the realtor um, who helped us buy this particular house. And on the January page was an image of my old house. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. So whoever put the calendar together and, you know, obviously seen You're an image. January. By, Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> So, so you see things like that come up. I've seen my images in the United magazine on in the you know the back of seat pockets on when you're flying a picture of Washington DC. Um, I see pictures of my cat um, on bags of cat food and wow, you know, how cool! Things like that. So it you know I, it, you're just sort of flicking through a magazine and you think that's my picture. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and it is it you know i can generally remember even though i've got 10,000 images for sale i can generally remember what each one looks like when i you know see it in print somewhere okay that's cool see that's how i feel about my photos is you know I, even in my case where when i when i take a good photo i mean it, it's going to be seen by hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people, because we have so uh -huh. many people uh, that follow Improved Photography on social media and go to go to the Improved Photography website. Um, but still, I feel like sometimes I take photos and they kind of just collect dust on my hard drive. And I, I've wondered about even just releasing my photos public domain. But this sounds more interesting. I like I just want to see my photos used. I, if yes. I get a check from it, good. I, I want to be compensated for my work. Uh, I don't want to do it just for fun. But but uh, but I want to see my photos used. And so that's really cool. Yeah. And, and that's to some extent how I get over this, uh, you know, this feeling that photos are devalued because people will only pay 25 cents for them as, as you mentioned earlier and to me I, I just i no longer care very much about how much individual sales result in i just look at how much i get from the agency and say to myself is it if is that amount of money worth the effort that it takes um, to you know, to get the images on that specific agency. So if they sell for twenty-five cents, well, okay. If they sell, you know, several hundred a month, and I end up getting five hundred dollars from that agency, well, that's fine. That's you know, it the it's made my work worthwhile. If you see what I mean. If all I get is ten dollars a month, then the agency you know drops off the list. It's just not worth bothering about an agency that only gives you $10 a month. Sure. Well, I, I like that. I think that's that's exciting. So one of the things you said in your book really surprised me. Uh, I was still under the impression that iStock was still the 800-pound gorilla. And what you shared in the book is that you're earning like four times more from Shutterstock, uh, Shutterstock.com compared to iStock Photo. Uh, why do you suppose that is? Um, actually, things this last year, things have been changing. I, I think the, the last issue of the book was in January of this year. Uh -huh. um, so the numbers represented, you know, what was happening in 2016. For some reason, and I haven't put my finger on why this has happened, I think it's partly to do with the merger with Getty or the, per, you know, Getty purchased iStock Photo. And then they've merged their websites together more completely, um, which I think happened around December, January of, of this last year, that the earnings from that site have doubled since the beginning of the year. From so iStock? As, yeah, from iStock. So oh, whereas okay. I think $200 or something like that, it's now regularly 450 maybe even $500 a month, whereas I uh, Shutterstock has gone the opposite direction. Whereas I, you know, used to think $1,000 a month from Shutterstock was, you know, the, uh, what I would expect or what I would certainly like to see. That's been dropping towards the $600 level. Um, the one that's really, for me, making a big difference now is Adobe stock. Um, you know, Which Adobe, used to be Fotolia, right? That's, that's right. So they bought Fotolia. They've done a ton of work to integrate it into Photoshop and Premiere for the videos and things like that. So they've made it really easy for creative people who are using Photoshop to you know, bring in um, a stock photo from their own agency. And that has been 
going up steadily for me. Not many agencies, you know, are going up in terms of earnings, but I, um, Adobe Stock are definitely doing something right. And I think it's all to do with that integration into the, you know, the various software platforms that they have. So things are, and I think that's the reason that I'm not exclusive with anyone, because there are people that are exclusive with iStock. And when you're because they give you a higher percentage if you go exclusive, right? Pretty significantly. I think it's 15% commission if you're non-exclusive and 45% or something like that if you're exclusive. But you're putting all of your, you know, future revenue with that agency. So if they do something wrong or if they really annoy their buyers or something like that, you've totally tied yourself to that. Whereas I think with me submitting to, I don't know, 15 agencies or something like that. If one of them starts to do something right, then I'm already there. I've already got my images uploaded with them. If they start marketing them, you know, well, a bit like Adobe have now done, I can ride that wave. So I feel a lot more comfortable being with all the agencies that I think are worth bothering with so that if one really starts to take off, then I'm going to ride the, hopefully, the success wave with them. Hmm. I, yeah, I, with anything online, it the only constant is change. Anything yes. online is changing constantly. I definitely see that with improved photography. Um, things will go up and down and left and right, and it's hard to keep on top of it. So I agree with you. Going exclusive with one company would be quite the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I couldn't imagine myself doing that, but obviously there are those who have done it and, and been successful with it. But, uh, for me, it doesn't seem like a, a great idea. Okay. So one thing we talked about that most of your photos are travel and landscape. Uh, do you feel like, um, and obviously that's because, uh, you know, that's what you enjoy, etc. But do you feel like if you had instead put your efforts on the portrait side that, that you would make more money per image? Um, I think I probably would. I, I, however, I don't think I'm that good at portrait photography. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I can technically take a good portrait, but there's a lot more to it than that. There's the how you make the model look relaxed and realistic, and 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 that's a whole skill. I, you know, some people definitely have that, and I, I don't feel as comfortable with that sort of skill. So I do take pictures of myself sometimes because I, you know, <laughs> I can pose myself and and I'm not that bothered about what it looks like as long as it, you know, tells the story. And I do have some images that sell well with me stretching up to change an air conditioning filter, for instance, you know, one of the ones in the ceiling. And that sells all the time because people always want to remind people to change their air conditioning filters. And here's, you know, some guys stretching up to, you know, change it. So it's, I, I do things like, I do do people photography, but generally only uh, with myself as a subject. So I think, you know, I, I could earn more, but I enjoy being outside. I enjoy, you know, turning out a good landscape photograph. And this is a, a way to, um, you know, get the money to both fund the travel and the equipment and have cash left over each month as well. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so um, how much do the photos need to be shot specifically for stock? Now, I was joking earlier about the super bright, clean images of mixed-race, plasticky-looking uh-huh. models, shaking hands, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but when you're shooting... Uh, like, let's say I, you know, I'm in Iceland, I'm taking pictures. H- how much do I need to shoot specifically? Like, it's got to have that stocky look for a landscape as opposed to just, you know, w- what I think looks good and most people look good is is also going to be suitable for stock. I, I think one difference um, and it comes with composition, that when you're composing an image and, and you're thinking, well, this, this is a fine art print, I'm going to, you know, turn this into a print for my wall you sort of carefully frame the subject. If it's a waterfall or something like that, you might put it on the one-third position, you know, the rule of thirds type of thing, and you focus in on it. You, you maybe cut out anything, you know, extraneous around the edges. I think a stock photograph of that same place, 
might want more space around the waterfall itself because whoever uses it might want to put some text there. So they, you know, it might be on a website and they want to put, you know, some something on, on the image on top sure. of the image itself. So I think with landscape and travel photography, having more space around it, um, thinking of horizontal as well as vertical compositions, because if it's going in a physical magazine, often that's a vertical format. So you're not necessarily taking different things, um, but you are giving it more space around so it can be cropped differently depending on what their need is and making sure you take vertical as well as horizontal things. So I, I tend to do that. Um, I tend to try to avoid people. Um, I, I think there's, you know, I, I, I think images with people do sell well, but you have issues about model releases if it's going to be used for any sort of commercial purpose. And getting a model release from someone on a beach, I have done it sometimes, and, and yes, you can do it. You know, you can get them, um, but it's it can be hard work. And so so on, I, on that topic of, of model releases, I know, at least when I did this a few years ago, nobody would accept a digital release. Is that still true? Um, I th- that's improved. There are some um, iPhone and iPad type apps that allow you to in effect, get someone to sign the screen and fill in the details, you know, in the app itself. And the agencies accept that. Um, yeah, so I, the one I use is called Easy Release. Um, I, yes, I've used that. Um, and I, I really like oh, it. Yes, although going up to someone and getting them, you know, to give you all their details on a beach is it's pretty tough. I mean, what, yeah. what, I, what I've done, and, you know, I was in um, Hawaii few weeks back you know it's a tough business being a stock photographer and i was taking <laughs> on, on a beach there and there were some young lads jumping in off off a rock into the you know into the turquoise sea and as i was leaving i offered to send them some pictures because i'd taken some pictures of them you know jumping in and so i gave them my card one of them emailed me and said yeah they'd like to see the pictures so i just sent them the pictures obviously for free and asked if they would mind signing a model release. And one of them was quite comfortable doing that. And so we just, you know, emailed it backwards and forwards. Um, so I but think it's probably easy for you because you have that beautiful British accent. You're living in the United States <laughs> with a British me. accent. Everybody just like instinctively trusts you and think you're super smart. Maybe that's it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'll write a book about how to speak with an English accent next. <laughs> yeah, well, lesson number one, call everybody lad. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I do that sometimes, and that worked with uh, this particular guy and, and the model release. You can also sell pictures with people as what's called an editorial license, um, which basically means if it's used to illustrate an article about a beach, then it doesn't matter that there are people there. They don't have, people don't have a right to privacy in a public place. And so if you take a picture of a beach and there are people in it and it's used in a newspaper talking about, you know, a beach holiday in Kauai, then you don't need model releases for those types of images. So it's always worth keeping that in mind as well. You, you don't have to have model releases. You can use them in different ways without a release. Oh, okay. Huh. Okay. Well, so, and what about uh, property releases? I've never really understood. I'm a lawyer and I still don't understand all the property release stuff. Uh, no. What I keep reading consistently from other attorneys who, who do know this stuff much better is that legally a property release is probably not even necessary most of the time. Um, but, but the stock sites uh, still seem to be iffy on it. So, so yes. the question I had is, let's say I'm, I'm in Tuscany. I'm photographing Val d'Orsia. It's this uh, old you know, house, but I'm not on their property. I'm on, you know, a public road, uh, but, and I'm kind of getting the landscape with that house in it. Do I need a property release or not? I I think for that sort of thing, no. Um, And I think you're quite right. I think there are very few cases where you need a property release, but the um, agencies are 
very protective of themselves. They don't want to take any risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, the, you know, I think the places that always seem to need releases are those modern um, sort of architectural buildings that are really special, you know, like uh, some of the buildings in London, the very strange shaped buildings. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's to do with the architect and the architect's sort of design um, of the building. There are some things that everyone knows, like the lights on the Eiffel Tower. Sure. So the Eiffel Tower doesn't need a property release, but the lights, which is you know someone's design does. Um, but it, it's each agency has its different view on it. It's not like, as your lawyer friends are telling you, it's not like there's some commonly agreed view as to what needs a property release and what doesn't. The agency is simply trying to protect themselves from some maybe very low risk, but they just come up with those rules. And so I simply go with it. If they reject it and say this needs a property release, then, well, okay, it's rejected. I don't try and get one because I've, I doubt if anyone anywhere would ever give you a property release for a building. Um, so it is just you just go with the flow. And I think that's you know an important thing for people getting into stock photography that your images will be rejected. You know, hopefully not all of them, but some of them will. And you just sort of accept it. It's sort of, well, okay, whoever the reviewer was didn't like that, saw some flaw in it, saw some noise in it or something. Unless it's a really super picture, I just, you know, accept it and move on. Um, I don't get worked up about it and say, oh, you know, how can he reject my picture? It's a lovely picture. How dare you? But, you know, you, you've got to take a relaxed view of it as well. Otherwise, I think you can get really caught up in two things. One is they've only given me 25 cents. Is that all it's worth? And, wow, well, it's been rejected. <laughs> you know, it was uh-huh. a good why is he rejected it? I, you know, I just take it easy. I'll move on to the next one. Yeah, I actually really enjoy the process of, and I haven't done anything with stock as I mentioned for a few years. I used to do some some with it, and you know, had a you know maybe. 20 images or something on there, really just to experiment uh-huh. with it. Uh, but I've just kind of left it there um, and haven't haven't done anything with it in a long, long time. And now what I'm seeing is, man, I have a lot, a lot, a lot of publishable photos in uh-huh. my catalog that are mostly collecting dust. And yes. I yeah. would like to see them used. And man, if I could start getting some checks every single month uh, in relative perpetuity, I mean, things will change, of course, over time. But, uh, you know, for a long time, if I can do some work, you know, spend a week and upload and, and keyword and do all that work, but then get money over the long term, th- that is worth it to me. Um, so I'm excited about doing about. Uh, about doing that uh you know would i start you know doing shoots specifically for stock maybe maybe not maybe maybe as something to just kind of you know get me get me going kind of give myself photo projects and Mm -hmm. just encourage me to shoot um but it's definitely something that you know i would be interested in using the photos that i already have Yes, yes. And I, I think the motivation one that you just mentioned is an important one because sometimes you, you know, don't feel like taking photographs, you don't want don't know what to do. But if you're sort of thinking, well, I could maybe do that for a stock photograph, it sort of gives you a challenge. Um, you know, like with my little bitcoins. How how can you take pictures of these little gold colored coins in a way that looks different or is interesting or is, you know, it, it's sort of like a, a challenge which results in some benefit, you know, some income from it as well. Um, and, and of course, and this might be a US thing, but you can, um, of course, run it like a business and buying cameras, buying bitcoins and all the rest of it are expenses against that business. So it, you know, all helps minimize the tax that you have to pay as well. Yeah, so Jeff anybody, Jeff actually, Harmon was just talking about that uh, on our chat last week. That uh, you know he really just wants enough enough income from photography to offset uh, expenses. You know, so they can buy gear tax free yes, essentially. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think that's great. So for those that are really just doing photography as a hobby, uh, there's a way to to, to dabble at least on yes. the professional yeah. side. Yeah. 
Now, two questions real quick about about preparing photos. Um, one is the the standards for what they accept as stock is not always just I don't like your image. Usually, it's something technical, uh, a dust spot in the image. I mean, ISO has to be very low. Um, it, it's got to be technically just about perfect. Do you find Do you find that the the standards for getting a photo ex- accepted into the stock libraries are as stringent as they used to be several years ago? I, I think some of the agencies are, are maybe opening the floodgates a bit. And I, I think Shutterstock to some extent is doing that. That's how it's building its catalog or you know, library to such an extent. Um, but you know, all of the sites have high technical standards, higher than you would normally expect. And especially when you think the images are going to be you know, um, downsized to a web type image. So I'm up, uploading pictures from the Sony A7R, which I think you may have got as well, but very, yeah. you know, very big, very um, sort of sharp images. And the end result might be that someone wants a web image, which is 800 pixels by 600 exactly. pixels. So that any noise that is there is just it's vanished. It's going to be gone, yeah. That it's sort of been downsized. But even so, um, the images are all checked and, you know, it's, if things aren't completely in focus, that they'll be rejected for that. Dust spots, as you say, horizons out of level. Um, you know, almost any technical part of, of the image can uh, cause a rejection if you haven't um, looked at it properly. So I always spend time in Lightroom with that little dust spot, you know, identification piece. Um, I tend to make them bright and uh, contrasty. That seems to be a you know a current desire amongst the buyers. They pop. Like, right, <laughs> yes, they like them to pop on the screen. Um, Usually, so when I, I hear I, a non-photographer say the image pops, it means too much color, too much contrast. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, but then I do downsize them. I downsize them to maybe five thousand pixels before I upload them. Ah, you're uh, downsizing it. Yeah, I, so I, I don't have... upload the full image um, because the vast majority of users are probably more for web use than anything else. And I think a 5,000 pixel image can obviously be printed to any yeah. size that most people want. But and don't that... they sell, I mean, don't most of the stock agencies sell, you know, a smaller resolution for this price, bigger, bigger, bigger? They do. They do. But it, once you get to the 4,000, 4,500 pixels, there are not many then they know, don't care. levels above that um, okay. because that covers almost everything that you would sure. want. You could print on. a billboard at 5,000 pixels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I, I tend to download and it, you know, it also gives me the ability to crop in. Um, obviously, starting from a bigger image, I can crop in and, and maybe just submit that. Interesting. Well, we have some questions from listeners of the Improved Photography Podcast, as well as some news um, and from the news desk and some announcements and the doodads of the week. But before we get to that, we want to thank, uh, to thank Shutterstock uh, for supporting today's episode of the podcast. Very serendipitously, since we're talking about, uh, about stock photography today. Today is, um, you might know of Shutterstock as the home of royalty-free photos, but they offer much more. Kickstart your next interactive project with video clips or music tracks from their collection. All of your creative needs can be served in one place. I've used Shutterstock many times as a buyer uh, since I'm a media media creator, and I think a lot of listeners to this of this podcast, we're you know we're all creating media. And so if you need uh, video clips, music tracks, whatever for your creative projects, blog posts, YouTube videos, then Shutterstock is a great place to go. You can take advantage today of a 20% discount the company is offering for a limited time at Shutterstock.com improve. That's Shutterstock.com improve to get 20% off your stock purchases. 
All right, Steve. Uh, a couple interesting news items uh, that we, we want to talk about today. One, Lexar is no longer making memory cards. Uh, I was really surprised about that. That news came out this morning. Uh, we've said for years, if you're buying memory cards, you know, probably want to stick to Lexar and SanDisk. And Lexar mm. announced that uh, there's just not enough money in it. And so they're going to sell off the removable storage portion of their business. Do you use any Lexar cards? Um, I've got some, although the most recent ones I think have been SanDisk, and I think it's probably driven by the you know the move away from compact cameras. That mm. you know everyone used to have a compact camera, digital camera, and you'd stick your cards in, your memory card in. But everyone that was in that market, or not everyone, but almost everyone, has gone to using their phone. So I think the the business is sort of gone from the still the high-end SLR users and they'll still use cards and you know that's that's still a, a business will, that will be there but that whole bunch of cameras that were in the middle um, the the demand for them is disappearing because that's a good point you know I hadn't thought about that uh, you know I think everybody needs SD cards but I guess that's true it's really just photographers now yeah it's really just the the high-end semi-professional you know the, mm-hmm. the really keen amateurs that have spent their money on on a really good camera they will need cards but the cards are, are so big as well that how many do you need it's not right. like you um don't erase them i you know i use them i keep them for a while and then i erase them and use them again so i think it's to my mind it's the that whole middle has gone from the digital camera market because the phones have become uh, so competent at taking good photographs. Huh, you know, I, I hadn't thought about that. And the other thing is a lot of cell phones used to have uh, an expansion port that, you know, you could put uh-huh. in a micro yeah. SD card and that seems to be going away as well. Uh, yeah. Sometimes yeah. I still see, I think the Galaxy Tab S2, you can still do that. But more and more, I'm, I'm not seeing that as an option in phones. Yeah. And I, th- and I think that's driven by the cloud storage that, you know, you can have so much because the phone's always connected to the internet. You can just upload your pictures and store them for free in various cloud mm-hmm. uh, sort of environments. So what do you need the extra memory on the, on the phone for? True. Uh, so, I, you know, I guess that market is disappearing as well. Huh. Very, I, I thought it was uh very surprising news, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see what happens. I'm sure it'll be sold off to somebody, SanDisk, Sony, Transcend, yeah. Toshiba. Um, but the question is, are they going to maintain this, maintain the same quality as Lexar did? Uh, I, I'm probably going to say that I'm just going to switch to SanDisk for a while until we yes, see what happens yeah. there. But mm. mostly, I just don't want the prices to rise. You know, if SanDisk doesn't have major competition from Lexar anymore, I've got to think that means prices will would go up eventually. Um, so we need so, to buy them now. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good idea. But uh, go buy all the Lexar cards you can find. Uh, and then also I wanted to mention the Lens Baby Velvet 85. Um, the Lens Baby lenses are really just kind of creative. I might even call them special effects, special effects lenses. Tracy Munson, one of the writers for Improved Photography, has been testing one for the last couple weeks. And uh, it was just announced today, but they got her a pre-release version. And so we have the review of that up on the website. So if you're interested in Lens Baby, that's definitely something to check out. All right, Steve, we got some questions from the audience to ask you. Uh, Barry Porter says, do you know of any any kind of release if you upload uh, photos of buildings to stock sites? So we talked about, about this a little bit, but I wanted mm-hmm. to follow up on this one. We talked about buildings in general, and you mentioned that if there's uh, you know any kind of modern, very unique building that it would probably need a release. Is that just the interior or the exterior as well? Uh, it tends to be the exterior, and I think as you know, obviously, if you're inside, you're on their property, and there's a whole set, of, different set of issues there. I, and I think it's the extent to which it's the focus of the image. So, if you took a picture of the skyline of London, and the gherkin is there as part of you know that funny shape thing is is there as part of the skyline, then that tends to be okay. It's when 
the subject is only the gherkin, ah. and, and that's front and center. Um, that's where the issues tend to come in. So if you're taking you know, broad views of, of London from somewhere and there's all these different buildings in, on the skyline. You don't have to get 100 yeah, different well, releases. You're okay. Yeah. Um, and, and there's no no way, to my knowledge, to get a release for those buildings. So, it, you know, it, who would you write to and what's the chance of them signing some bit of paper? Sure. Zero. So, so it's either you've taken the picture, it's going to be accepted or rejected and that's all you can do about it. If they reject it because there's no property release, you can't do anything about it. Um, just go with the flow sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, th there's one thing about the this whole release thing is that the legal issue is the, is belongs to the publisher of the picture. So it's not the photographer that is at risk in taking a picture of the gherkin in London, to use that example. It's the publisher of the image, which is the person that finally makes it available to the public in a newspaper or a, you know an advert or whatever, um, because they're the only ones who know how it's finally going to be used, because it would be appropriate to say, you know, there are many buildings in London and here's an example of one and that's editorial use and that doesn't need a release. But if you say, um, you know, we've got a product that looks just like the Gherkin and you show a picture of the Gherkin, then that would not be appropriate because you're using something to do with that building to, you know, help sell your product. So the photographer has no idea how the photograph is going to be used at the end of the day, which is why it's the publisher's risk, not the photographer's risk. Ah, I see. Okay. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, it totally does. Sure. And then if you, of course, upload an image and, and, and represent that it's suitable for a certain type of use, that publisher, if they get in trouble, get sued, they're going to turn right around and come after you. Yes, but I think if the photographer is honest and says, I have no releases, or alternatively, I have these releases. That's all a photographer can say. They, right. they can be honest about what they have. And if they have no releases, then they have no releases. And hence the I'm, – so I'm not saying that an image is suitable for any particular type of use. I'm saying I either have a model release or I don't. I have a property release or I don't. That's That's really all I'm saying. And as long as I'm – honest on that i'm not misleading anyone oh okay yeah that makes sense all right the next question comes from brandon hurt he said what colors are most prevalent in stock photos that sell i think what he's getting at here is you know should the photos be uh you know really bright and eye-catching so that they catch people's photos uh catch people's eye as they're kind of glancing through or does that not matter so much in your experience I think it does matter because if you think of what a buyer is doing on a stock agency, they've put some keywords in that they think describe the image that they're looking for, and they see a page full of thumbnails of the images that maybe match those keywords. And so your image has got to jump out at a thumbnail level. It's not like they're looking at a big version of it. They're maybe looking at, you know, a small thumbnail amongst all the other ones. And images that jump out to your eye are the ones that are bright and contrasty and maybe have primary colors because, you know, we, we tend to see reds and things like that. So I think it's partly you want someone to click on your thumbnail because if they do that and they start to look at a bigger version, you've a lot more chance of of them actually buying that particular one. So I think the bright, contrasty, primary colors, you know, as long as it's not <laughs> silly, if it's an interior of a dark forest and you made it bright green, no one's, you know, really going to um, want to license that. So it's got to be appropriate, but equally it's got to attract their eye when they're looking at a whole page worth of thumbnails. Okay, makes sense. Well, um, we got a call into the Improved Photography Hotline, the first one, um, and I'll go ahead and play that. That's from Larissa talking about our episode on camera repair. Hey, it's Larissa. 
Sorry I haven't been on the podcast for a while, but I was listening to Jim and Jeff talk about the camera repair podcast, and I had sent my Nikon D800 in for repair because it would not focus. Thanks a lot of you for trying to help me figure that out, but everything we tried wouldn't work. I sent it out, and they estimated the repair cost to be $246. The total up ended up being $276.92. This included tax and shipping. It only took about two weeks to get the camera back, which I was really happy for because I had a shoot coming up. And they say that they replaced the following things on the camera. The rubber grip, they replaced the rewind side rubber, replacement of the card holder rubber, they adjusted the mirror, adjusted the autofocus operation, check communications, did a firmware upgrade, they cleaned the CCD and a general check and clean, and I was very happy with their service and the turnaround time, and then they, that they did more things than they had originally said they were going to do. So thanks, and love the hotline. Bye. So I was interested hearing that experience uh, that Larissa had, you know, she sent it in, they said it was going to be 245, then it ended up being 275, and I. it seems like every time I send my camera in for repair, it's right in that range, two to three hundred bucks. Um, and I wonder if they just kind of peg that as the price point that people won't just go buy a new camera and will still get the still get it, but but uh, but it's the most that they can get out of people. Have you ever had had camera repairs to do, Steve? Um, yes, yes. I uh, only once though, and I, it it was um, one of the smaller Sony's, the all-in-one unit. Um, and from what I remember, the repair was about two seventy-five. I'm telling you, it's, they're colluding on us. <laughs> yes, although I, I did manage to get it covered because I'd bought it with a credit card that um, gave you an extra year's worth of warranty. So oh, interesting. Um, I managed to get that covered. Cool. Well, in every episode, we like to give you the doodads of the week. But before we do that, I want to just make an update on the Really Good Photo Spots app. Um, it is so close. I believe we have our final version that's being submitted to Apple. Now, that could mean that you that it will be available on the App Store in the next couple of days. It could mean that it'll be several more weeks. It just depends on how fickle Apple is at this point and what they want us to change, uh, or maybe they'll just accept it on the first swing at it. So uh, I'll, I'll keep updating you. I know we have gone long on that project. Uh, it's one of those things that, like, if it were all up to me, I would just stay up all night for three days and and uh, just fix this thing. Uh, but, you know, I'm working with other developers, a lot of moving parts. It has to be tested on lots of different iPhones. And so it's been a difficult project. But in the end, we're going to end up with an, an app that's polished, totally ready to use and has great data. So I think it'll be worth the wait. All right, Steve, the doodad of the week. What do you have for us? Well, um, I, I've recently I started moving into stock video um, ah. because, uh, you know, the stock photographs, there are, as I said, 120 million or something on Shutterstock, whereas stock video is a much smaller market um, so far. And people use stock video as part of a TV show. They use it on websites. So basically, you make 10, 20, 30-second clips and people into insert them into some other production that they're making. Um, and so I've done stock video with, with my Sony camera, but I recently bought um, um, a GoPro, uh, and the little doodad that I then bought to go with it was um, a time-lapse rotator. Um, and so with, with the GoPro, you can do time-lapse uh, photography pretty easily, our videos, where it takes one shot every half a second and then creates a video out of it. And this little rotator thing rotates round through, if you want, up to 360 degrees as the time-lapse is going on. So if you're in a, some nice landscape spot and you want to take a time lapse of the clouds rolling by you can also rotate around the scene um, at the same time and it's a little bit like a kitchen timer you know mechanical kitchen timer it ticks when you turn it on but it's sort of like 33 dollars i think something like that 
And I've used it a number of times to sort of pan around various landscapes as I've been taking a video of them. Did you say it's called Seam Lapse? It's, yeah, the company is GoPole, P-O-L-E, so G-O-P-O-L-E, and it's called the Scene Lapse 360-degree time-lapse device, uh, and it's made for GoPro cameras. Hmm, very interesting. Ah, okay, I found it here on Amazon, yeah. $33. $33, perfect, yeah. Yeah, huh. yeah. Uh, and works, so could you use this well. with a cell phone as well or just a GoPro? Um, it, yeah, the, the, it comes with a GoPro uh, mount on the top, but you can unscrew that and put more put a of a, you know, a different sort of um, mount on top of it. So it definitely would do um, a, a cell phone. It wouldn't really do a big camera because it's not got the you know the strength in the clockwork sure. mechanism to turn a big camera and a lens round. But you know, smartphones, Go, GoPros, that sort of thing. Um, does a good job and it sort of adds an extra bit of interest to the video. You're not just statically looking at the mountain or whatever it is. You are sort of panning around it in a very smooth fashion as this little device rotates. Very cool. Well, my recommendation this week is the Amazon Basics microfiber microfiber thick cloth. Uh, so I've I've never liked microfiber cloths. They always drive me nuts uh, because they always like I I use microfiber. So okay, I should back up. Normally, when my lens is just dirty, it's just got a little dust on it. I always use pec pads. We've talked about that tons of times on the podcast. I think they're great. But when um, when the lens is wet, then a pec pad really doesn't do anything for you. You know, if you're shooting a waterfall, something like that, get some spray on it. A pec pad is just going to smear it around. And most microfiber cloths are really going to do the same thing. They're just thin. They don't really absorb anything. They, they just kind of smear water around. So uh, I've been using for a little while. I have no idea what brand or where it even came from. I must have got it at a conference or something. Uh, a thick microfiber cloth uh, that's kind of more like a towel, um, but, you know, really soft for a lens. Anyway, so this Amazon Basics one uh, works great because it's it's huge. It's like 16 by 20 inches. So you can, you know, put it over the camera to block block spray and then just Take it off for a second when you're shooting at a waterfall, and it will actually dry the water off your lens. So uh, that's one to check out. Everybody, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. I want you to take a moment and go check out Steve's blog called BackyardSilver.com, as well as his book, Getting Started in Stock. Uh, It's inexpensive, available for the Kindle. I think it was $7.99, if I remember right. Um, Inexpensive, available for the Kindle. It's really a quick read. You can read it in a couple hours and uh, really gave me all the information I feel like I need to spend the next week and just get organized, upload my photos, and then I would love to see some checks rolling in. So that's awesome. (laughs) Steve, thanks for taking the time to uh, talk with us and share your experience. And we will see you in another seven days. Thank you very much.